0: Hello and welcome to the BGSM Podcast. My name is Taj Pandya and I'm a medical student at the University of Manchester. Joining me today is Dr Andy Massey. Andy trained in both medicine and physiotherapy and is currently head of medical service at Liverpool Football Club. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me Taj. Andy, the Premier League football season is coming to an end and it's notoriously long with often over 40 games per club. What systems do you use to manage the workload of a player?
1: Well yes it's it's probably 40 games minimum if you take the 38 league games and a minimum of two games. Now that can often creep up to 60-65 games so we have a, a number of systems in place. I guess the, the first one is recruitment of players um, found certainly at Liverpool and lots of other Premier League clubs will look at recruiting the right type of player for the systems that they use now. Um, you want to not only recruit talent but robust players that you know are going to be able to manage the the minimum 40 games a season and once you recruit those robust players you need a way to try and mold them into uh, the system that the the manager wants to play um, be it an intensive system or a tactical system or or or, or both um, we use a couple of methods at Liverpool and um, mainly uh, revolving around screening I personally find that screening remains essential to protect athletes' health Um, we use it um, based on uh, a player's injury history and then we implement interventions that are customised to the impairments or the activity limitations that we find on that screening. Um, We all know that previous injury will increase re-injury risk by three to four times, so we often focus our interventions on this, we keep it as simple as possible um looking at individuals who possess exposures or traits that increase the likelihood of injury and and eventually address these but injury risks don't stand still so our our battery of tests we tend to do throughout the year and they change depending on the specific player we make them individualized and the actual tests themselves may change as well so somebody who is at risk of say um, a hamstring injury later on in the year we may have, have have solved that risk and they might develop a risk of some other injury so um, the things that we tend to use um, I like the wellness scores I like the uh, RPE obviously we, we assess players strengths and functional um, abilities and um, we we'll test each players bloods uh, three times a year um, and we get the most information probably from from the gps data um which every player uses um in in the training sessions so we have a, a group of staff that can tie all these tests together um and in order to, to, to be successful we have to work together bring all the information together find out what's the useful information discard the the less than useful useful information and um, and we use that then to tie in with our manager's philosophy of trying to to run further, faster, and more often than every other team. Because if we do that, then the obvious skill that the players have will take over. Um, so there has to be a lot of communication then with the manager, with the international teams, with the various departments within the club. Um, we need to. Constantly evaluate the best recovery strategies um, and be that the supplementation that we give to the players, um, thinking about when we take players away on warm weather training, whether the benefits of that training will outweigh the travel that we have to do on it. When the players can have days off, um, would a day off be of more benefit than a tactical session? Um, and again, that's all in, in, in association with, with the coach and the, and the management team um so yeah i guess a lot of the strategies that we have we want them to be functional we want them to be purposeful and we don't just want to do them for the sake of
0: of ticking a box i'm going to move on to about talking about players during during a game and often what we miss in football is the replacement player the substitute player and how do you manage them differently with regards to their nutrition and their workload regardless of whether they play or not well, we work
1: a lot with our, our fitness department and our nutritionalist on that. So, um, you know, t- technically we try and give everybody a stimulus. If if they haven't played in the match, we'll give them a stimulus on the, the, the match day plus one that is intended to replicate what the players in the match did. Now, having said that, if you bring a player and expect him to play 60 matches in a season, you do run the risk of fatigue. So we also have to, to you know, to be aware that a season is long and it's heavy, so sometimes players might need more of a rest than others. Um, and like how we look at that in the previous answer, um, we can use that and just individualize it for for each particular player. Now, replacing players or or substituting them or or limiting their match minutes, um at our club is, is is purely a tactical decision that's something that, that the, 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 the gaffer deals with you know unless somebody is injured and I often find it difficult going to a manager and saying such and such a player is only fit to play for 45 minutes or 60 minutes you know it always seems that that supposed minute is is, is a nice round number like 45 minutes um, and quite rightly, our manager will come back and say well Why are you picking 45 minutes? Why is it not 90? Why is it not 60? And it's very difficult to rationalise that sometimes. So we try and keep things as simple as possible. Whenever I speak to the manager, it's, you know, is the player fit or not fit? Um, If he's not fit, then we have to say, well, is it in his best interest to play? Is it in the team's best interest to play? And if that answer is yes, it is, then it's about giving the manager as much of the pertinent information so that he can, make a decision on whether this is going to affect his game plan um, I think one of the interesting things that you know we've mentioned about replacement players and it's probably um, a good time to mention it or, or or get the publicity for it is replacing players around around head injuries and um, we find at the moment that there's a lot of focus on on managing head injuries correctly and um, now Doctors aren't supposed to be influenced by external pressures, um, and I always stick to the mantra: if in doubt, sit them out. Um, but we also have a big match coming up, um, and I just think the, the the replacement side of things for head injuries at the moment in football is suboptimal. Um, I will hate to be the uh, the doctor who's in the position in a in a in a cup final whenever we've used all our substitutes. And I have to make a decision to bring a player off. Now, I shouldn't be influenced by that, but I just feel feel football as a governing body at the moment are failing protecting doctors and failing protecting players because we're having to discuss this. Obviously, the right answer is if you suspect concussion, the player comes off. But I think we've got to put a lot of um, pressure on rule makers um, to protect us as medical staff, to protect players, um, and look at the... the the adding in a, a concussion replacement um, say no doctor that i know wants to be in the spotlight and as soon as there's a head injury both the doctor and the player are thrown into the spotlight um, and i think we've got to look at ways to try and try and protect both the players and the doctors
0: um thanks for that i think the bgsm community will echo your thoughts around sort of head injuries and the difficulties managing them in football uh, following on from that the Premier League paid out over £175 million in wages last year. Um, How does that sort of influence your decision-making and your relationship with players?
1: That's actually a really good question. Um, Working in sport is difficult for a number of reasons. Um, My first overriding priority is always to the players and their well-being. Um, I'm a doctor, so it's my duty to put the players first. Now, does this mean do I pull them out whenever they have any type of injury? N- no, it doesn't, because I wouldn't be very good at my job if it was. Um, you always hear the, the, um, the saying about, first, do no harm. And I actually don't think that applies to sports medicine. Um, Because if that was the case, I would never be able to give simple analgesia before a match. Um, I wouldn't give nerve blocks to get people through, Um, say um a a, a a a fractured toe um or a broken rib. Um I take my responsibilities as a doctor very seriously and I'm very open about my decision making um and I regu- regularly talk to other doctors whenever we have ethical grey areas. But as I say I don't subscribe to this first do no harm, I'd prefer to explain it um with regards risk and benefit um and try and help a player decide what is best. Um, not only in in the current situation, but financially and for the rest of their career. So I think that if a player's got an injury and the benefits of them playing outweigh any risks that they get, then I'll help with that. Um, I understand that the, uh, the players will often want to play through injuries, so quite often we, we, we try and put them in a position to negate as many of the risks as possible. However, having said all that, I get paid by the club so I have to have an understanding that the club wants success and um, so the question is you know do the benefits outweigh the risk of the player and is the manager happy with any potential impact on the function of the player and the team so I guess in answer to the question 177 millions an awful lot of money but it has zero impact on any of the decisions I make and um, my relationship with the players, I try and keep it as equal as possible. So I wouldn't try and be friends with the best player. Um, I would try and treat him as equally as, as the youth team player that's come up. And, and quite often I'd, I'd spend a little bit more time with youth team players um, to get them more comfortable with uh, with the environment that, that, that we work in. But money doesn't really make any
0: impact on any of the decisions I make. Okay, So we'll go through... Uh A simple case. So if a player came into you with a a, a grade two rectus femoris injury, how would you approach the management for this player?
1: I'm very lucky at Liverpool that we've got a lot of specialties, a lot of very good specialties. So the first thing I would say is that we have this shared decision making. Um, You'd mentioned that I trained as a physio before I became a doctor, but my physio skills are 15 years old. It would be very disingenuous for me to start... Um, dictating to the physios how to 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 rehab players, but with a grade two, I guess um, we we would start off. I'm a real stickler for detail, so I'd be asking what type of grade two. You know, is there tendon involvement? If there is, how much? And um, whereabouts in the tendon is it? And um, is there any degloving of the fam Um, looking a little bit closer. You know, is the tear longitudinal? Is it transverse? Um, and I find that has a big bearing especially on the tendon injuries um a big bearing on return to play time um i know there's an editorial in the bgsm about the bye bye mri um looking at hamstring injuries um and seeing if we could uh guesstimate a return to play um whether mri had uh, a role to play in that now i slightly disagree in, in professional sport i think it has a massive role to play especially when it comes to tendon injuries and especially when it comes to particular types of tendon injuries. And the tendon injuries that you see that are most prevalent in football are going to be the biceps femoris and and the rec fems. So in order to get all these answers, um, we'd start with their examination. Um, You're looking at palpation range, strength through range, their functional movements, Um, I like seeing the mechanism Um, up until 10 years ago we always thought rec fem injuries were primarily a kicking injury but we've been seeing more and more now that it's happening to the contralateral side so like a sharp eccentric plant movement before you kick. Um, We've had two in the last year that has actually come from sprinting whenever that hip is going into maximal extension and knees going into maximal flexion. Um, So we'll record all our training sessions, obviously all our matches are recorded, so looking at the mechanism of injury I find is is useful. Um, Looking to see if there's neural involvement, Um, obviously going through past medical history, biomechanics, the screening, this is where I find the screening is very, very helpful with us. Um, And then actually getting um, a sort of pictorial representation, either from an ultrasound at the time um, or going through MRI. So rehab then, we look at daily assessment. Um, I'm really interested in setting criteria and sticking to criteria. I don't have timeframes on the criteria. I think it's 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 functional based criteria and I really only ever skip criteria if we've got say, a cup final coming up. Otherwise, stick to your criteria. If it served you well in the past, it'll serve you well. Simply speaking, um, I split the rehab into what I call treatment room and functional. Treatment room is about promoting healing, using the police principle from, from uh, Chris Blakely and, and Phil Glasgow, using low load exercises, using simple movement patterns, using isometrics and concentrics through mid and inner range, and then progressing on through that, increasing load, commencing running. I'm I'm a big believer in running, be it in in the pool or the altered G, but getting that cardiovascular hit. So we're not only treating the, the rectus femoris, we're treating the whole body. Um, Looking at lengthening exercises, and then it's just gradually increasing the function through that, building strength in all planes. Once you get to 75%, adding in the eccentrics, changing the load and the speed, obviously one at a time. And at each day, seeing how you respond to the the previous day. A lot of the the, the rehab that I do, I don't need the players to be pain-free, but if you're taking a VAS of, of two out of 10 and below, then we know that we can increase either load or speed or difficulty going into the next day you know and that sort of brings you into the the the, the sort of the final stages with rec injuries um, it puts a lot of stress on the the change of direction we can do that whenever you're getting up to about 70 percent of your of your running speed building in the kicking progressions and again starting with the same principles we will use the ikd a lot for that but the ikd at higher speeds we use the kaiser machines because you can increase speeds through kicking progressions on that but again, it's important not just to focus on the rec fam. It's important to look at you know the contralateral shoulder, the protraction that you get, this whipping mechanism that footballers have now, your obliques, um, your hip movement, and I guess you finally bring it all together in the end to look at bringing somebody back using the GPS characteristics with their axles, D cells, to get higher than what they were in the past, if we've got their 100% of Axel's, of D cell's um, high speed distance, you're looking to get something a little bit higher than 100% to try and protect them from, from this happening again.
0: One percenters or adjuvant treatments, they really get a lot of press and Twitter coverage in the world of football. What treatments do you find may help the player, whether that he works in a sort of physiological way or perhaps uh, psychologically? <laughs>
1: I love the concept of 1%ers. I think it was Dave Brailsford um, and it fully makes sense in everything that he did. He, he looked at thinking, well, are we at the peak of what we do at the moment? What what can we add to it? But I also worked with a physio who said, you know, you can't have the 1%ers at the expense of the other 99%. Stick with the other 99% as well. Um, and and that's sort of looking at the, the, you know, making sure that you have got good processes in place for strength, for their endurance, for their functional movements, for having good staff around a player, for having you know using the best surgeons whenever you need surgery, for having good communication. You know I find with the one percenters sometimes it's an excuse for players to seek that magic bullet Um, and this is where you get lots of gurus coming in and they'll say they can offer that one percent um, and my view is it's the easiest job in the world to try and sell a magic bullet to a player because they'll always want something different to what other people are doing so the way i look at it is if i think that this adds one percent then yes we'll use it and um, but not at the expense of the 99 percent. i'm still a scientist and um, by trade so that one percent needs to either have evidence or eminence as i call it and um, evidence within the literature or eminence in in fact that somebody else is saying they've used it maybe the literature hasn't caught up with it yet um, but it's worth a look at as long as it's not providing any harm. Um, But as I say my basic principles are on biomechanics, strengths and conditioning. Where I find the one percenters are maybe useful are on the aspects sort of added to players fitness like infection control and um, at the club we're building a new training ground so we are looking at fully automatic doors so that people don't spread infections by by putting their hands on doors we're looking at supplements you know what um, vitamins are we using with them what other supplements are we using is there the evidence behind those are we using zinc to decrease um, infection rates are we using vitamin c to try and increase the immune response and um, we're using high-dose um, vitamins to try and prevent people getting getting illnesses or to try and postpone those illnesses. Um, looking at the recovery strategies as well. Um, and I guess it's it's at this point we say it's so important to have a research department behind you in a club as big as Liverpool. We're very lucky. We've got the University of Ghent through Eric Vitro, who will provide us with a lot of information. We've got Liverpool John Moores University through Barry Drust. And... Um, who will give us this information or help us find that information or find the research it's just it's very difficult doing this job and keeping abreast of all the one percenters you need a lot of help with it and having you know two very good universities to help us with that sort of keeps us
0: on the front foot we're going to move on to talking about retiring uh it's been talked about a lot recently and transitioning to retirement is often described by players as very difficult what systems do you have in place from a medical point of view to manage the retiring player? This is something that um,
1: came up maybe about six months ago. I was reading, I think it was in the BGSM as well, uh, reading about this. And I'll be honest, I never really thought of it that much before I read that article. And I think it's something that uh, the the importance of it cannot be overstated. Looking back, I do don't think I've ever had a player, certainly at Liverpool, I don't think I've ever had a player who has retired. Um, but if and when that does happen, I just think a, a next health examination is 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 essential for the player. We collect so much useful medical data, be it cardiac screens, uh, concussion histories, surgical histories, even mental health histories and medications. And I think it's unfair to give a player just a complete you know, four or five files of medical notes through their through, that they've gathered through their through their playing career. I think this has to be packaged in a way that they understand it. Um, and I think the follow-up once somebody retires is um, is essential. Now be that that the the clubs they've played for have a duty of care to them or be it that the union that they subscribe to, you know, the the, the PFA look to maybe employ doctors to try and help with this. I just think information to players is vital. I think that has to be in a very simple way and I think we have to look at ways that we try and continue the care so that for the players once they retire so that they know how to deal with the the you know the inevitable osteoarthritic changes, they know how to deal with the possible um mental health issues, they know how to deal with the 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 the, the, the possible uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy or any any sort of disease or impairment that football has caused, they know what signs to look for and how and where to get help. I think as, as medical professionals, it's a, we have a duty of care, as employee employers, the clubs have a duty of care, and certainly as a union who are working in the best interests of players, they all have a, 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 a duty of care.
0: Finally, to talk about the, the younger people who might be listening to this, early career professionals, uh, what sort of tips would you give them to want to work in football, what sort of mistakes do people often make things like that I remember just as I was finishing off physio I
1: wrote to all 92 professional clubs um, asking could I come in or would they have any jobs could I work shadow could I volunteer now 88 of them didn't reply 3 of them sent me a reply saying no and 1 of the 92 said yeah come on in um, and have a look around my advice to people is don't be afraid of rejection and um, Obviously, you can volunteer, but I sometimes question what you learn from volunteering. It It, it is good for some people. For me, it's not so much. I find it better going and, and finding out who the best people were or, or listening to, to, to people present at conferences thinking, can I learn from them? Can I go and watch them? Just go and ask people. Can I come in and work shadow you? You don't have to volunteer. Sometimes it's better just sitting in the back of the room watching how people maybe assess or watching how people do research or watching how even people just speak to to, to players, to to patients. Sit in, um, ask them, say, 88 out of 92 people or 91 out of 92 people said no to me straight away. Just Don't be afraid of rejection. Some people are busy. They can't always do it. But if you can find that one little nugget or that one really good clinician or that one really good researcher, you will learn so much from just sitting in on them. I guess some of the pitfalls would be don't think that the the biggest clubs employ the best doctors. I think I'm tantamount to that. There's lots of better doctors than me about. Um, I've been very lucky to get this job. Um, Find out who is, you know, I'll I use the example, I was very lucky to get a physio elective with Jill Cook. Blew my mind when it comes to tendons. Learned so much and from, actually learned so much from her as a clinician and as a researcher. Um, and that sort of set me on my way throughout my career thinking, well, what did I learn there? How can I put that into place? um The one thing I hate seeing or whenever people come in with me were work shadowing is to, to, is, is, is what I call the twitter twats. Don't don't put on selfies. Don't think you've made it just because you're standing in front of a, a Liverpool sign. Stay humble with it. Um it's the humble doctors, the humble physios who I think um make it. It's the nice people. It's the it's the helpful people. I'll still name, you know, five, six, seven other Premier League doctors who I think are absolutely fantastic people. And they're the ones that I'll still phone up for advice. Um and they're all nice people. Um i guess generally be nice be a team player help out as much as you can don't be afraid of rejection and probably the most important thing i was told by my first international manager was don't give a player a chance to laugh at you don't do silly things in front of them and um, try and keep their respect but do it in a way that they respect you
0: for being a nice person
1: um, and, and a good clinician
0: that's really great advice andy um thanks very much uh, links to some of the papers discussed in this podcast can be found below and uh, we'll try and link them in as much as we can thank you for listening and i hope you really have a great active day with.